Hello, and welcome to the Government Digital Service Podcast. My name is Vanessa Schneider, and I am Senior Channels and Community Manager at GDS. Today, we will be talking about the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service, and we will be joined by several guests. You'll be hearing from Sally Benson from the Department of Work and Pensions, Martin Woolhead from the Department for Environment, Farming, and Rural Affairs, Kate Nichols from the Ministry of Housing, Communities, and Local Government, and Nick Tate from GDS. As you can tell by this long list of participants, the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service involved a lot of people working for a lot of departments. It was truly a cross-government effort, but you might not be clear on what it is. In March 2020, as a critical response to the developing COVID-19 pandemic, GDS rapidly built the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service, also known as VPS, to provide support for clinically extremely vulnerable people in England who had been advised to shield. The service was stood up over one weekend and then continuously iterated to support emerging policy and user needs. The service enables clinically extremely vulnerable people to register their personal details and support needs, which are securely stored, validated against NHS shielded patient lists for eligibility, and securely transferred to frontline service providers. During the period of national shielding from 23rd of March to 30th of July, that is, wave one of shielding, the Vulnerable People Service facilitated more than 4.2 million deliveries of essential supplies, support with basic health and care needs, as well as providing priority supermarket deliveries. Joining me now are Kate Nichols and Nick Tate. Thank you for being here. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the listeners? Let's start with Kate. Sure. Hi, uh, I'm Kate Nichols. Uh, I've been working in the Ministry of Housing, Communities and Local Government uh, as part of the Shielding Programme, particularly on the data policy team. So we work really closely with GDS on the kind of ongoing development of the Vulnerable People Service. Amazing. Thanks for joining us, Kate. Uh, Nick, would you mind introducing yourself? Absolutely. Uh, Hello, everybody. My name is Nick Tate. I'm the service owner for the Clinically Extremely Vulnerable People Service here in GDS, and I've been with the programme since May the 5th, 2020. Thank you. So both of you work for parts of government that have been instrumental in the development of the service. I was wondering how you came to join the teams that are working on this. It's pretty much born of necessity, really, and, and practicality. As you said in your introduction, Vanessa, there were a and, and there remain a lot of interested parties, a lot of stakeholders, um, too much for any one department to do, given the, the nature of our response to um, the emergency that we found up, find ourselves in. And the two, as far as GDS and uh, MHCLG were concerned, or are concerned, we're the two main players. We represent the policy and the delivery of said policy, as far as the digital service goes. And furthermore, Um, As the project has uh, progressed, it's become expedient for us to get closer to uh, both policymakers and and people they know. So relationships with uh, local authorities, for example, are best facilitated by colleagues at MHCLG. Uh, Kate, I know that you joined the MHCLG team working on this a little while into the VPS being set up. How did you experience that? It was actually a really great time to join um, because all of those kind of key relationships between GDS and MHCLG had already been established. Uh, And when I joined the team, it already really had that kind of one team feel. So um, I'd, I'd come from a completely different job elsewhere in government policy Um, and I came here and it was just yeah this kind of efficient machine (laughs) that was just like achieving things every single day so yeah it was it was a great kind of feeling uh joining in with that. 
Amazing. Both of you touch on relationships being established, being really valuable. Do you think you've experienced anything um, on this scale where you've had to tap in so many departments working on the same project before? Or do you reckon that this is, and I dare use the dreaded word, unprecedented? My my experience of a civil servant, um, there has been nothing quite like this. Um, And for me, the fact, sure, I've worked on other programs where there are perhaps as many stakeholders, but not at this pace. We, we have excellent governance practices in processes in place, but they happen at two weekly cycles. But, you know, at, at the working level of getting the job done, then um, to really hone in on where those key relationships are, that's something that we have had to do in order to respond at scale. Um, and and I should add that because there are so many stakeholders, we have engagement leads on the project whose main job is to consult with local authorities or with DWP or with food and medicine suppliers and so on and so forth. So it, it multiplies out. But yeah, nothing quite like this before, I think is fair to say. Completely agree with Nick. So I've worked on teams in the civil service before where there's been you know, a degree of close working with departments, but I don't think the kind of level that we've got to where you know you can just pick up the phone and speak to anyone on the GDS side if you're on MHCLG and and vice versa and it's just kind of it's just right there at your fingertips I think that's something I've never quite experienced before. I'm, I'm really glad to hear that that went well then. What was it like working with colleagues in departments like uh Department for Health and Social Care and external organizations like the NHS who may be structured differently because of their work being so focused directly on the public? Yeah, so we've we've worked really closely with NHS Digital because they sort of provide the shielded patient list, the SPL, which is basically the kind of the heart of the whole project. So while GDS have built this wonderful registration system the people that that's targeted at are the people who are identified clinically by doctors um, and and other clinicians to be uh, clinically extremely vulnerable so we've had to kind of similarly to how we've done with GDS we've had to build up really good working relationships with them have sort of regular meetings joint governance and really kind of create that kind of one team feel to make sure that um, that the right sort of data on those who are clinically extremely vulnerable is flowing through our system is flowing to local authorities um you know whilst also keeping patient records safe secure and um and and sort of operating legally so that's kind of the challenge of what we've had to do with nhsd and i think by building up really good working relationships with them um that's how we've managed to kind of overcome that and and use that data in a way that hasn't you know, really happened with patient data ever before in the past. Nick, was there anything that you could add about either the working relationship with DHSC or NHS Digital? So my my experience around DHSC or the one that I'd sort of pinpoint is is their involvement at the overall overall program steering board, um, where we have had um, regular contact with the deputy chief medical officer and having having senior stakeholders as embodied in dcmo to go and there is all of this happening helps frame our work a little bit more um and then that comes down to to working level where it is the nuts and bolts of the all all important um shielded persons list which as kate says is uh, without which um we'd be scrabbling about 
So we actually talked to Martin Woolhead from DEFRA, which is the Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs, regarding the Vulnerable People Service. He also shared with us a little bit about the working relationships between the departments. I'm Martin Woolhead. I'm Deputy Director for Food for the Vulnerable in DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food, and Rural Affairs. My role essentially is uh, overseeing policy and work on food for vulnerable people. So that ranges from work with food charities uh, and local authorities um, to essentially get and look after food needs of vulnerable people. You know, one of the things that I think constantly cropped up throughout the process was that, uh, for example, on what we did on food supply, um, MHCLG could also have done that. You know, MHCLG as program owners and working on this across government and leading it could also have uh, essentially contracted with food suppliers to deliver the um, the packages of essential supplies that were delivered. The, the reason it wasn't done in that way was simply because of those relationships and the urgency that we had. So because we had the existing relationships, DEFRA was able to kind of work specifically on that bit and get it done quickly. So where DEFRA worked on food supply because of its existing relationships, um, other departments had relationships with others. So in regard to the the supply of medical supplies, so medicines and things, uh, DHSC led on that element because they had the relationships. Um, and so with MHCLG convening, uh, they were able to kind of use the relationships that other departments had and kind of you know, outsource those bits. Um, and for me, that's part of the reason why it was done so quickly. Um, so with all of the urgency, these existing relationships to get things done, um, from, I think, the first ask um, for you know, essential supplies to help shielded people to boxes um, of essential supplies uh, starting to appear on doorsteps took uh, around 10 days. Um, and from the announcement of shielding, so when shielding was first announced publicly, two people first receiving their essential supplies was five days. And, you know, in the context of panic buying across the country, in the context of the global pandemic, the fact that we were able to organise direct doorstep uh, essential packages uh, to any doorstep in England, uh, and, mo and most services don't offer that. You know, most um, supermarkets won't offer um, uh, doorstep delivery to every uh, address in England um, in just five days. I think was an incredible achievement. Yeah, we already had people that were experts in food supplies that knew the supermarkets. We already had a government digital service with like expert content providers, people who are expert in in data protection. We already had, um, you know, MHCLG who have like links into councils and a really good understanding of what councils do on the ground and deliver. And also everybody in each of those departments already knew that we already had those people in the other departments. And, you know, I've missed people out, DWP who you know, know everything about how to set up an outbound call centre. So I guess it's kind of, it's a really positive story about the kind of existing connectivity between departments and different levels of quite sort of deep expertise in different areas that we were able to draw upon pretty quickly. Yeah, I think, I think I'd echo that. I mean, no individual department needed to reinvent any wheels, really. The, the program trusted each department to to focus on it, its its domain area and to do that well, which which happened. Um, the the challenge wasn't sort of reinventing the wheel; it was to build the new one, and the new one was around the data sharing, was around actually gluing a a relatively disparate bunch of people within within government to work together. Um, 
And once people sort of trusted that Department X would take care of their stuff and Department Y would do that, then it was just the governance and the working that needed to be worked out, which sounds dismissive. It isn't at all. There was there was hard work to do there, but we didn't sort of go, oh, well, I've, I've done food policy, says non-food policy department, so I'll get involved with that. There was There was no time for that sort of shenanigans and people were focused on what they knew best. And that was the the real strength. I was going to say, in a very cheesy way, everybody brought their own wheels and it turns out they were cogs that all worked together and it made a very smooth machine. Indeed. Indeed. (laughs) So clearly, relationships are a key part to this having worked so well. But uh, are there there any other drivers that you can think of that supported the development of the service? I guess, so like the, the key driver, as in everything we do, is meeting the needs of our users. That's, you know, primary directive uh, users first. And I think what we've learned over the project is like when everything was stood up in April, May 2020, the primary needs to be met were those of the clinically extremely vulnerable population. And and as we became one team, we, we began to expand or, or more fully understand who our users were. How best are we serving service providers, whether it was wholesalers delivering food boxes, whether it was local authority, civil servants at the front line who are in fact proxies or can act as proxies for CEV users and use the system themselves and have their own requirements in their own local authorities. And then sort of a, a, a third section of, of our users would be our stakeholders in terms of those who consume and then act upon the data that is presented via um, the dashboards that uh, the management information and data analytics teams progress. So I think, you know, the key driver has has always been and will remain our users, and that's sort of enshrined in how the service has been built. But what has changed and, and continues to be iterated upon is, is how we understand who our user population is and, and, and how best to serve that. Do you think that the service benefited from uh, products such as WK Notify already being in place, but also, for instance, the uh, data lists for the shielded um, people because that data already existed? Was that something that made your lives easier? Notify, yes. I can't. I, I don't. I don't want to entertain thinking about how um, things might have been had we not had. Um, a readily accessible solution to communicate in as many channels as as possible, whether it's a physical letter, whether it was an email or a text message, which would have happened via Notify. And and don't forget either that that DWP colleagues had our outward bound call centres. We also had our, our interactive voice recognition system that was part of the initial Wave 1 service that allowed people to, to register. That was inbound only, but but nonetheless. So Having access to tools and technology that that we could trust, because they'd been tried and tested before us, made made our lives easier. I was wondering as well because the user required um, the user was required to submit their details that were checked against that list provided by the NHS, and DEFRA provided details to retailers under specific and secure conditions. I was wondering how the safety and security of user data was ensured, and how was the data joined up to make sure the right people were giving the appropriate support. That was um, something that again is kind of to use the the much used word unprecedented. so that was an area where we had to get all of the right people with 
the right legal expertise and data protection expertise. So, you know, the data protection leads across DEFRA, DWP, MHCLG, GDS, the data protection officers all together. Um, They formed a kind of data governance oversight board. And whilst we, you know, we were kind of under a lot of pressure to work really quickly and get data to, to, you know, supermarkets, to councils, etc. as quickly as we could, we had a really kind of rigorous group of experts holding us to account to make sure that we had the right data sharing agreements in place, the right MOUs, um, and, and all of that kind of information governance documentation. So that was um, really appreciated. And it sort of goes back to the running theme of that cross-government working. If we hadn't been able to get all of those people in place, then it, we just couldn't have made it work. Um, I believe there was a transfer tool as well. Uh, could you tell me more about that, perhaps? Uh, I believe it meant that you could select how people or which people could access what data, if I got that right. So we, we use, or the cloud hosting service that we use for our data storage ben- benefits from its own internal security reviews that they perform on the overall system. And then their secure storage solutions are compliant with our strict regulatory requirements. So in our case, what this means, and this is where the the data transfer tool comes in, is that all of our data is encrypted, both when we store it in the database and when we share it with whosoever we are sharing it with, whether it is a local authority or another government department. And then at the same time, um, and talking of regulations, we've, uh, we've established a sort of our own processes around the database. So if you think about GDPR and the principle of the right to be forgotten, um, that we have our own processes for this. And if, if our listener is interested, um, then they can they can go to our service page and our, all of our privacy documentation is open and, and available there. So like even for our teams or members of the engineering teams who have access to um, production, only those with security clearance can access them. I mean, it's not available to Tom, Dick, or Harriet, so to speak. And we we log and audit everything. So at any given time, who accessed which piece of data at one point, that information is always um, available to us. So, you know, we we take personally identifiable um, information very, very seriously on this. That sounds like you're doing your due diligence. I hope the listeners are heartened by that. Yeah. <laughs> So next, I was wondering, obviously, we hope that something like this never happens again. That's the whole point behind the unprecedented language, of course. But I was wondering if, at the very least, there are learnings that you can take away from this project and collaboration that you've carried out, um, as well as maybe what not to do. I guess the main the main thing I've learned as somebody who's a, a policy official who's never worked on a digital project before, I think I've learned something very valuable from colleagues in GDS about, about that user-based development and continuous improvement, particularly in an environment where you're setting something up very, very quickly as an emergency response. Um, and I think the more, as we've gone along, the more we've consulted our users, and I'm particularly from an MHCLG perspective, thinking about councils and ask them, you know, what they think and taking their feedback and expose ourselves to kind of their their comments and their perspectives, the better the system has become. Um, and I think that's definitely, I guess, a general learning from me, but also if if I, you know, if we were ever in a position to be doing something like this again, doing that kind of immediate 
constant almost consultation with users would be my main learning from kind of a policy person from the digital world because I know user-based <laughs> user-based development is already a kind of uh, a thing that that is common across the development of digital platforms. You're sounding like an ambassador for agile and user-based research there. That's amazing. Um, but I was also really um, keen on you identifying sort of users outside of the clinically extremely vulnerable people and um, the local authorities, because obviously the, the service has now changed because it's a much more local approach to providing these services, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And um, I think there are... so both in wave one and wave two on the ground in councils the picture is a lot more complex you know our service talks about kind of basic support needs but the kind of detailed assessment of each individual is happening at that council level and and the delivery of that support is happening across all sorts of organizations voluntary organizations nhs volunteer responders um charities etc and i think another kind of key I guess, key groups that we've tried to listen to are, you know, groups like Age UK um, or those voluntary groups that are actually on the ground doing these things. They're not direct users of our service, but kind of by proxy of of being connected to the council, um, they are linked to the eventual kind of frontline service that our platform leads to. To echo Kate that... um having policy at a sort of a a high level, having policy and delivery in the same room around the same virtual whiteboard makes for better service delivery. And I I think that's the, you know, personally, and then sort of to to share more widely within GDS, that that, for me, feels like the only way that this can work, because otherwise, it it will be a far more protracted process. So, I mean, we, we talk about closer working and collaboration and the tools that, that sort of facilitate all of this um but we in my experience we do that because it's true and this and this project is 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 proof to me at least and i and i hope to our users that 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 is the case um so i think the other thing i i'd reflect on over the time of the project was at at the very beginning our our, our overall governance was was weighty um, there was a lot of it, and over over time, as the working relationships have developed and the collaboration has developed, and some of that governance has been more focused on the bits that we're actually working on. So I think that's another reflection from me. And I, yeah, just, we again we say it very sort of readily now, and it, and we took it quite lightly to start with, but the, the whole hashtag one team. Um, Again, it, it's not a joke. It really is. It's the real deal for us. And um, w- without that, we, we wouldn't be, I think, having a, a happy conversation like this. And as you say, I, I hope we don't have to respond on this level before, but there is enough learning here to, well, to make an, a really active and considered response quickly rather than as fast as you can, which is kind of where we were to, to start with back in 2020. Of course, at the time, you know, it was just about getting it stood up, wasn't it? Mm. So we did talk to a couple of your colleagues in other departments, and one of them was Sally Benson from the DWP. That's the Department for Work and Pensions. So we're just going to listen to something that Sally shared with us. 
name is Sally Benson and my day job before being involved um, on the National Shielding Helpline as part of the Critically Extremely Vulnerable Service um, is working for the Department for Work and Pensions. Uh, more specifically, I'm a senior operational leader um, in the child maintenance group. I think when we actually bring it home, two people stick out in my mind in terms of uh, people that we phoned. Samantha, a blind lady um, that had no no friends or family immediate support around her, um, wasn't um, on a you know a mobile telephone, but the National Shielding Helpline um, were able to get in contact with her and, and put her in touch with those people that were able to help her. Another lady that we also spoke to was a lady called Carol. And it became apparent from the outset of the call that, that Carol was, was experiencing some, some health difficulties on the phone and, and was talking to us about um, how she was having trouble breathing. Um, and actually, we had a process in place that enabled us to call the emergency services. Um, our call centre agents remained on the call talking to Carol, making sure that she was OK um, and staying with her until the emergency services actually arrived. Um, it turned out that Carol was actually um, suffering a heart attack whilst on the phone to us. Unfortunately, there were 1,400 people throughout the whole of the of the Shield and Contact Centre process that, that actually needed us to refer to the emergency services. And, and I think, you know, wh wherever you are and whatever part you played um, in the in the Shield National Shielding um, Service, whether it be, you know, the, the, the data side of it and, and, and enabling us to actually contact people like Carol, in the first place, um, whether it be decision makers and policy makers that, that actually decided that people like Carol needed um, needed uh, our help and our attention, or whether or not you were part of the actual contact centre that for Department of Work and Pensions, everybody played a part in in making sure that we genuinely supported and protected um, those most vulnerable. And I and I think we've got to keep. Samantha and Carol um, at the forefront of our mind when when we are truly understanding the difference that that we made and and it's those those things that really give that um, sense of pride um, real sense of purpose um, and, and how together working across government we we really do um, look after those most vulnerable in our society and the National Shielding Service was a perfect example of of that. For the GDS uh, teams, we are uh, intimately connected on a user research level because our user research involves speaking directly with the clinically extremely vulnerable as well as uh, our other user groups. And this is, on one hand, very, very stressful for people, especially in the earlier days of the service when people were in dire straits for the need of, of basic care supplies. And... Um, that that has uh, an impact and an effect on on the people who are conducting that research, and we have to take care to support and uh, and and look after our, our own team members who are open to this. It's a very present now now validation of the work that you're doing. I think as civil servants, we are all contributing to um, the enhancement. I hope of the society within which we live, and to have that instant feedback or relatively instant feedback is very, very powerful indeed. Yeah, I'd agree with Nick on that point. I think you're always, you know, as a civil servant working on kind of policies that you hope will have an impact on the public, but often you might be waiting 
months or years to actually see that manifest uh, just because of you know how long policy development in normal times takes um but yeah to be able to kind of immediately see how what you're doing is actually helping people in in some small or, or big way is is a really great thing about working on this even though it definitely comes with some of its kind of pressure and, and stresses um, I was wondering if you had any achievements that you wanted to call out specifically, any milestones, any maybe shout outs to colleagues that you wanted to praise publicly? So I think it's, it's um, whilst I'm not a huge fan of milestones, there are certainly achievements that, that it serves as well to remember. So the service itself was stood up over a weekend, four days or thereabouts. And then for those registered users, essential supplies were arriving on doorsteps 10 days later. That's pretty amazing. And then over time, in, in, in from the, the March to the end of July um, 2020, just over 4 million um, deliveries of essential supplies were made. So, you know, th- this is real stuff happening. So I'm, I'm quietly proud of those things. Um, and I think all of the teams genuinely have done the, the best they could with the tools they had at hand and with the information they had at the time. And we've taken time throughout the, the, the project or the program to pause and to reflect and to ask ourselves, what can we do better? Um, and, so, and some of that has been sort of like recognized formally. So in terms of shout outs, um, then I, I guess we'd give a shout out to, to David Dilly um, from GDS, who was very surprised on a personal level and nonetheless very, very happy um, to receive a, an Excellence in Leadership Award at the, at the cabins last week. So these things are all good to have and, and to work on a service that, that impacts people's lives pretty quickly is um, often enough. Yeah, again, I, I feel like specific milestones um maybe aren't quite what the thing that makes me kind of the proudest of of the of working on the project I think the kind of continuous professionalism and kind of I guess thirst for improvement is what impresses me about working on this project so obviously the beginning you know, there was a very clear emergency response and, and a lot of momentum <laughs> that kind of comes with that. But it, I think it's really impressive that even though that kind of initial phase is, is, is you know, of emergency is, is past us now, there's still kind of that appetite to constantly to constantly test with users, to constantly improve. We just just last week, we kind of implemented some improvements to the data feeds uh, based on local authority feedback. And I think it's really inspiring to see people who are so enthusiastic about sort of delivering not just something that's good enough and does the job, but something that is constantly getting better. A, a really like, serious achievement in terms of like the overall Sort of easing of some of the pressure has been the overall relationship with with local authorities. So um, we we meet regularly, fortnightly at the moment. It used to be weekly with our, our local authority working group, which is made up of unsurprisingly members of uh, local authorities from um, different parts of the um, the country who have different experiences and sort of maturity of of, of digital. And when we started. Um, there were a lot of sort of folded arms and like, what are, what are we all doing here then? 
But that group of people has stayed relatively constant, has put the hours in, has sort of really risen to the challenge of collective working and collaborative working. And and now, I, as, as Kate has just sort of evidenced, that group of people is co-designing the service. And, and that, for me, is an, a, is an achievement. But there's no sort of milestone because it's been continually being, being worked at and worked to, towards by, by everybody in that group. And, and again, like so many things, it, it hasn't been a particularly smooth ride. It's been a bit bumpy in places. And that's totally fine because, again, as Kate said, everybody was kind and humble and professional about it. And, and felt free to to air any concerns that they had. And, and collectively, that group is delivering. And that's just wonderful. Yeah, I definitely think we owe a lot to the kind of openness and, and I guess, willingness to give us their time of local authorities. Obviously, I would say that being from MHCLG. But, um, you know, in, in so many different fora, we have across the Shielding Directorate, the Stakeholder Engagement forum um where we get lots of valid feedback we run kind of weekly surgery sessions uh with councils where we get so much kind of valuable insight into what it's actually like to use our service on the ground to deliver real stuff (laughs) to people um yeah as nick said we've got our invaluable local authority working group so yeah i think that's a really really big part of any of the success that we can we can claim to have had from the system comes from that for sure. Amazing. Yeah, it's it's not always easy for these external parties who might not have been there from the beginning to um, work on this in a way that they might not be familiar with. Obviously, it's a very agile approach with GDS, and that's been something that's been spreading around government, but it's not necessarily something that local government has had to work with yet so it's it's great that they're signing on and that they're really engaged with it as well well on that positive note thank you so much to all of our guests for coming on today you can listen to all the episodes of the government digital service podcast on apple music spotify and all other major podcast platforms and the transcripts are available on podbean goodbye goodbye Goodbye.